0: From the Grand Reading Room in the Nashville Public Library, this is Just Conversations, Nashville Reads How to Be an Anti Racist, presented by the Metro Human Relations Commission.
1: Hi, my name is Betty Kirkland and I'm with Project Return. Welcome to Just Conversations, Nashville Reads How to Be an Anti Racist, being filmed in the Grand Reading Room of the Nashville Public Library. I'm joined today by my colleagues who can introduce themselves.
0: I'm Larry Crick, Program Services Director, Project Return.
2: Martisa Johnson, Chief Public Defender, Nashville Public Defender's Office.
3: I'm Don Maben, an ex uh, prisoner.
4: I'm Graham Reside, I teach at Vanderbilt uh, Divinity School.
1: Today we are discussing Chapter 11 of Dr. Kendi's book entitled Black. Um, it's really about the racism that's in our criminal legal system. And so to kick it off and set the stage, I'll turn to Martisa and um, just kind of ask a little bit about um, how do we see racism playing out in the criminal legal system, whether generally or specifically?
2: Thank you. So systemic racism finds itself in all of our systems, unfortunately. And so the criminal legal system is no exception. With you know roots in really building our criminal legal system during the Jim Crow era and really just how we have built policies that led us to where we are today. We have that racism just baked into to our fabric of our legal system. Mass incarceration is our biggest example of systemic racism. And the root there is because, you know, minorities, particularly black men, have been for many, many years from slavery forward seen at higher levels of dangerousness, there is a presumption of guilt that is automatically associated simply because of who they are. Um, and we know that from our children who are in schools and that's how we have the school to prison pipeline. And that same, um, that same thought pattern is what led us to policies that lead us to where we are today with our criminal legal system.
1: Thank you. Um, Graham, I'll turn to you. I know that in your work as a teacher of, of young people, um, racism certainly can be interpersonal and you, you see, uh, have discussions about that, but we're talking about structural racism. Can you talk about that a little bit more in, in line with what Martisa was saying?
4: Sure. I think one of the things I really appreciated about Dr. Kennedy's book was this emphasis on structural racism versus sort of individualized uh, sentiments or feelings of racism. Uh, it's important to recognize that we live in a society that is structured uh, to disadvantage people of color. and It's not enough to say, well, I'm not racist. Uh, We live in a racist world, uh, at least a world that is shaped by a set of behaviors and practices and patterns and institutions which disadvantage people in significant ways. And I I do think that uh, when we come to think about the criminal justice system in particular, the consequences of those disadvantages are profound.
1: Um, Don, I'll ask you to speak a little bit um, about your youth. Uh, coming up uh in Memphis, Tennessee.
3: Uh basically uh I grew up in a predominantly all black integrated neighborhood, North Memphis. Uh it was a, a hard working community with very few resources, uh not a lot of opportunities for the young blacks that were there. Uh but, you know, we we, we strived on and, and and uh you know just uh, basically Found our way into different areas of, uh, you know, to to make life somewhat easier. You know, uh, there wasn't a lot of mentors, a lot of people to to really look up to. So uh, when uh, what I call the the drug epidemic hit uh, North Memphis, it was like the epicenter of a major explosion, you know, young youth that had never really had anything financially or anything material and all of a sudden you're, you're you're on top of the world with drugs you you see the power that drugs bring and uh it 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 took off from there most of all my uh young friends at the time uh, we got off into that trade and we got off into that lifestyle and uh At one time, uh, I was at a prison called Fort Pillar, and there was like 75% blacks there at that prison. It was in the rural part of Henning, Tennessee, uh, which was predominantly all white, maybe two blacks worked at that prison. It was a lot of racism, a lot of culture shock for us to deal with. And so we met and felt racism full force there, coming from the urban area. And that was my first introduction to racism, you know what I'm saying? Because I'm growing up in an all-black neighborhood, you know, so it, it, was, a, it was a major clash with us. So, and, uh,
1: yeah, I'm sorry, and so that ties into one of the points that Dr. Kennedy makes in his book, which is that crime really arises from a, oh, a terrible lack of economic opportunity. Uh,
3: and, and, and uh, you know, exposure. You know, you, you don't have uh, the resources and you're living in poverty and uh, you are uprooted and moved into the areas that where you are having conflict of just uh, no dialogue. And we see that with our today's police force that come into the black communities that don't have any 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 kind of relations. And that's that's that is a uh, ingredient for explosive behavior. And uh and, and, and that's what it was. It was a lot of clashes, a lot of you know, it was it, it it was a terrible time, you know, uh for me. I was still young, I was still trying to find my way in life and you know, and uh, and here I was uh incarcerated and you know, given a long sentence, you know, along with my uh my peers and you know, trying to navigate that was uh, was very challenging, you know, but.
1: Thank you for for sharing that. Um, I think at the heart of this book is the way in which um, racism is about uh, the formation of a group identity, ascribing characteristics to an entire group and then immediately creating the hierarchy that says that a racial group uh, is inferior and another racial group is superior. And so Uh, Can you speak to that a little bit, Larry, in terms of what, uh, how we see that playing out in our community or in our criminal justice system?
0: Yeah, I think that you take, for example, you know, different systems, police forces, um, COs in prisons, um, you, you talk about different categories of individuals who are working in those particular. And I think that when you're deeply entrenched into a brotherhood like police officers and you're an African-American police officer, there's something about you being a part of that and not having a revolutionary sort of a mindset, the strength and the ability to speak up against what you see wrong because of the brotherhood that you're a part of. So when we see racist acts like officers um, killing black bodies, and you've got other black officers right there present, there has to be something within an individual. And what I'm saying, it's a revolutionary, revolutionary sort of a mindset, a strength to see something that you know is not right, that the public is seeing that is not right, and then having <clears throat> the wherewithal to speak up around that. I think that that's a major issue when you look at these categories of employment. What <clears throat> well, folk have an opportunity to incite change, but there is something that makes you subdue that. And again, I just think that, you know, without having a revolutionary mindset, if we think about the individuals who've made strides and who have given us a path to model the kings of the world, um, there was a a strength that they had to be able to speak out against and not be so concerned about what the consequences of their actions would be. So I think that that's a, a major issue that would have to be broken down within individuals to have the confidence And that's just based on what this country has been like historically. Um, I think that economics play a major part in it as well. It's my bread and butter when I'm in one of these positions. Uh, I have to stop and think about when I go home, my significant others are not going to always talk to me about what I'm doing or what I'm seeing and not speaking up about that. So there is no reinforcement of the wrong when I get home. And so my economics is going to rise above, a lot of times, my thought process, my feelings, I'm going to subdue in lieu or in light of my economic scenario. So I think with all of that sort of put into the pot, that is what makes it difficult for, number one, individuals to speak up, step out when they're in positions where they can do that, um, and then to be able to collectively come together um, to, to speak up and speak out against certain injustices um, that's, that's part of the issue. I think being able to break that down.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Um, that also seems to relate to the, to Dr. Kendi's, um, debunking of the powerless defense and the, the thinking that black people too can, uh, either be racist or be anti-racist. And, um, and Martisa, I know you see it every day in your work uh, in the public defender's office, um, what are ways that. Um, our community can look forward and actually make anti-racist change. And uh, is there, can we be excited about the fact that we have a new police chief who is, is black?
2: So I'll I'll take the second part of your question first. Um, One thing we know for certain in Nashville is that people, communities, particularly black communities and other minority communities, marginalized communities and people that I represent have for many, many years been asking for the type of change that, that we want in policing. We want a police force that is more attuned to the community and the needs of the community that prioritizes uh, a restoration of a community versus just punishment and incarceration that really takes in consideration the, the things that that cause people to have an introduction to the criminal system. So what we've been talking about, the economics of a community. So one of the things I think that we can do, and I I say this a lot of times, you know, what type of Nashville do we want to be? You know, where we put our resources indicates what we care about. And so if we invest resources in building communities, so making sure that our education systems are strong, that our communities are strong and affordable so that people can live there and feel a part of this community and feel a part of the society that is Nashville, then if we resource that well, then I think that we can start this sort of reconciliation with the community that has you know, a lot of frustrations around racism. I am encouraged that our police chief is, is a black man, but not only that, I'm encouraged by the fact that he's from Nashville. We talked about his roots in being from North Nashville and has a history of involvement with youth sports in Nashville and being really connected to a community. So for a community that has been crying out for the type of change that we want to see, a, a, a complete shift in the way we, we um, see public safety, a complete shift in how we prioritize um, incarceration versus restoration. For that community, I am hopeful, and we do have a great opportunity as a city to, to, to establish what we will be known for. Are we going to be continuously known for a community that is harsh to poor and minority and black communities? Or are we going to be known to be a city that is groundbreaking in the area of trying to undo this structural racism that is, is baked in all of our systems and has led us to this point we are in today?
1: Mm. Yeah, that's powerful. What, what does that make you think of, Don? Any, any thoughts from you on, a, on having a, a, a new day in Nashville, possibly?
3: Oh, of course. Uh, without a question, uh, you know, I mean, I've seen so much change, and why not change that? narrative, you know, uh here in Nashville. And I was just uh just just delighted to see uh uh putting more uh blacks in, in power here to, to 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 bridge the gap, you know, uh not just with the the black community but as well as the white community, you know, I'm saying to to hopefully bring a, a more you know togetherness here in this city. Uh I love it.
1: Uh, Graham, is there a point to be made uh, somewhere in this conversation about uh, morality, goodness, humanity, um, as we consider the extreme racial injustice that we uh, are enacting every day?
4: Yeah, thanks for that question, Betty. <clears throat> it strikes me that uh, one response is, is that we need to be more empathetic to people who find themselves uh, under the boot of our system. Uh, But but empathy is not enough. Uh, And I'm particularly speaking to folks of privilege uh, of one sort or another, maybe particularly white folks. We have to be empathetic, but beyond that we have to do something. We have to see a change in the world and and just put our shoulders to the wheel uh, for those who are disadvantaged, not just for their sake, but for all of our sakes. Because we uh, want a society that's uh, that's a just society, and that's that I think is the, um, an ethical question. What does the just society look like? And when I look at the facts of our incarceration system, of our criminal justice system, I do not see a justice system, uh, at least not as fully formed as, as I would want and I think as we would want as, as a society, as a local community, and nationally. Uh, so that is a really fundamental ethical question that Martisa asked. What kind of world do we wanna live in? Uh, What is the good life? And who's included in that good life? These are important questions to keep at the foreground of our mind when we think about this. And again, I'm I'm grateful for this book to uh, turn our attention to that and and to you for leading this conversation.
1: Um, It reminds me too of the point that Dr. Kinney makes in chapter 11 that I tend to think of as extreme denial. Um, There was a survey recently of thousands of police officers And overwhelmingly uh, they agreed with the assertion that this country has already done all that it should do to create equity for black people. So uh, more than two thirds of black officers said that was the case. Uh, More than nine in 10 white officers said that that was the case. And of course, Dr. Kendi is saying, and I think we're all saying that's not the case. um, How do we, number one, I guess, um, how do we see that playing out in our community if, if that's what officers believe? Uh, black and white alike. And number two, um, how do we account for uh, that extreme denial? A few years ago, we heard the phrase, Nashville is not Ferguson uh, after the killing of Michael Brown. And and just a few years on, um, I'm not sure that that we would uh, be able to hear that very comfortably. So uh, those are a couple of questions in there. I'm just interested to hear what anybody thinks about that.
0: Well, when you look at those statistics, I, I see, especially coming from the black officers, Um, a little bit of untruth in that. Um, And I think it goes back to what I spoke to earlier. Those officers are involved in what they would call a brotherhood, and it doesn't matter whether they're black or white, and so when you've got to put your thoughts or your supposedly beliefs on paper, and it has to come back to hunt you possibly in some way, um, I believe that that's probably a reason why some of those officers may have even voted that way, just not to be um, <clears throat> put out there as somebody going against, right, what the system wants to say. We, we, we look at examples here when you go against the power structure, right, <clears throat> people get fired, people, people have to worry about their economics. So if I had to come up with a reason why, you know, an, an African-American officer would would feel in today's time that enough has been done to satisfy the anti-racism that we want to see uh in this country i have to step back and take a thought about you know what are they seeing that i'm not seeing and that's what i come around to it's what they're it's what they covet every day it's what they see every day and what you see every day and what you hear every day becomes a part of your your natural Uh, being, your speak, your pathology, and the whole nine yards, and it begins to be what you represent. It doesn't necessarily always be what you believe, because I think you're worried about other things that are important to you as well, more than the consciousness or the revolutionary actions that it's going to cause when you speak up or when you tell the truth about what you're really seeing.
2: And I, I would just jump in just there a little bit. You know, you asked the question of how do we see that play out? You know, we see it play out because we have a criminal legal system that incarcerates far more black people than anywhere else in the world. So it plays out in a world where one in three black men are likely to be incarcerated in their lifetime. It plays out in, in even a system here in Nashville where, you know, we make up black people make up about 26% of the, the the population. And according to the last studies that we did of our criminal legal system, we made up almost 50% of the the incarcerated people In our Nashville jails so we're not talking about a worldwide problem we're talking about when the mentality is we've done all the work necessary to eradicate racism, then we get stagnant and we get stuck in the policies that are deeply rooted in that same racist thought. We have baked in all of our criminal legal system that mentality. The policies that built our probation and parole system that is extremely harsh to black people and other minority groups and poor people. That's how it plays out. When we believe we have, you know, we believe we've done all the work, then we've gotten complacent. And what we see is we continue to just add to mass incarceration add to the disparities that exist in our community. And and that bleeds over into all of our systems. I spoke about it earlier, but the same thing applies in our education system. When we say we've done all the work necessary to eradicate racism, that's how we have schools in predominantly black communities that are low performing and under-resourced. And in comparison to our schools in our white neighborhoods and more affluent neighborhoods, it's just amazing what can be done with resources. So the failure to own, probably because no one wants to confront a personal feeling that they are racist. You know, we don't wanna say that, we don't wanna confront that. And because we fail to do that work, to confront that it's not individual, we're not calling an individual a racist that led to this, this problem. But the systemic racism, the structural racism that that was the sort of root of all of our policies and procedures that give us our criminal legal system and other systems, that's the problem. That's where the racism is. So no, we have not done the work necessary to eradicate it. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that.
0: And Betty, if I could add to that, and I would be remiss if I didn't, the breakdown of the black family. When we're incarcerating so many African-American males, it, 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 it has become and continues become to become a detriment in the, Af- in the system that I would call the African-American family dynamic. And when that is broken up, it plays out and manifests itself in those children, in the, in the family, in the economics, um, it- the psyche of the, the-, the wife. It-, it-, it just manifests itself in so many ways that it's hard to come back from. So I just needed to add that as a way that it really also plays out when we get outside of these systems that we see. right? We don't, we don't get a chance to get a, a lens into the family dynamic to understand the real detriment.
1: I appreciate that. And thank you both so much for those points. And, uh, and to your point, Larry, I think I hasten to add that, again, it is racist policies and practices imposed on a people that create that breakdown of the black family. So when, when black fathers are not allowed in spaces where their children and their wives are, that is a racist policy that's enacted, a structural racism that creates that. So it's a... Uh, deeply troubling. Um, and and uh, Don, I know that you spend a lot of time reflecting on your past and I wonder if you think about like what could have been different, like what could have been different for you as a, a beautiful person coming up um, in in that neighborhood that would have would have been different for your life.
3: I just look back on that and you know and getting getting at the age that I am now, I can I can reflect and see all the the stumbling blocks, you know, uh, that was before me. And uh, like someone on the panel said resources, you know, and there were very limited resources. If anybody know the history of Shelby County, you know, uh, that, that region, you know, the history of it, you know, the most populated area of slaves during the 18th early 18th century, you know, uh, it was uh, in the the political structure of of that area that, you know, racism plays such a major part, you know, at keeping us oppressed. But you had gotten so immune to it that you couldn't really feel it, you know, We only felt it during the I am a man struggle when Dr. King came there. And that environment, that city, uh, my community, when I look back, rose up in unity with Dr. King. And that was the first time I became aware of as a very young man, the racist struggle that was taking place and it was so severe. So. Just it was, you know, and I look back on that and I've. You know, because my father and uncles, all of them participated, you know, very quiet, uneducated men, but found the, the heart to, to face that political machine there. And it was uh, as we know the outcome. The dreamer was killed. Uh, you know, Memphis uh, tyranny was, the chains was broken. And, and, uh, but that void wasn't filled with opportunities and jobs. You know, uh, and, it, and that's when I was becoming a teenager. And that was so much. Uh, nothing to do as young men in the summer and uh, you know uh, my mom she worked six days a week I had a baby sister I I look back and see myself as sacrifice so that my sister could come on and like most young men in the community and we found ourselves on the wrong side of the law, you know. Uh, I, the community was was economically dep- deprived, you know. So when 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 the drug scene exploded, that was really not a, a, a hard choice.
1: I got you. Yeah. You know I, your phrase so much nothing. That's. Uh... Yeah, yeah. That's, that says it. and It reminds me too, and I know we need to wrap up our conversation for the moment, not for not for long. Um, but uh, Larry and I do the work of Project Return, and you know Project Return well, Don, and, and Martisa and Graham as well. And Larry, do you want to speak to like how, what can we do? What do we do that is anti-racist when at Project Return we are solely dedicated to the successful new beginnings um, doing everything we can to not have people face so much nothing when they get out of incarceration, how is that anti-racist or how does that speak to this topic?
0: Well, the first thing that I would say, you know, the work that we do at Project Return is anti-racist because we're extremely radically inclusive um, of individuals who are coming back from incarceration, who've experienced these things. Uh, we're radically relational. We understand the support. Um, that individuals who are returning from incarceration back to our communities need. Uh, The elevated support, not just the pats on the back, the walking alongside individuals uh, and feeling their pain and helping them sort of calibrate around that. Uh, I think that we, uh, from a staff perspective, um, um, have lots of black and brown bodies on our staff. Um, We're extremely um, and strongly represented from a leadership perspective. Uh, with black and brown people uh, and have been for a number of years. So this is not just something that I feel that we've done to answer a question. I've been there since 2014, and I've been a strong part of the leadership team at Project Return. Um, I think that the fact that we our main metrics are uh, high job acquisition and low recidivism, I think that speaks to the economics that individuals need uh, to be able to succeed out here. Uh, it also speaks to the ability not to go back to the penitentiary, right? So I think that we're curbing um, the transition of individuals leaving our community and going back to incarceration by uh, supplying legitimate job opportunities for them such that they feel um, some progression in life. So I think in the majority of those things that I just mentioned, you know, we've gotten off to a very good start in terms of uh, if not already becoming an anti-racist, uh, organization and that's the work that I think makes us put makes us fit into that particular bubble and to be able to continue to to, to soften those edges and and be more inclusive of all those things that make us a full 100%, 100 100 100 anti-racist organization
1: thank you um I'm very sorry we need to wrap up um thank you all so much for joining in our conversation today for more information and more episodes please go to www.justconversations.org. And uh, thank you again. Next, I think up on the, on the show will be uh, chapter 12, which is entitled class. And I know we hope to see you there. Thank you.
0: Just Conversations is presented by the Metro Nashville Human Relations Commission. Executive producers, Sarah Imran, Mark Etherly, Barbara Gunlardi, and Bob Ferrissey directed by Cooper Smith and produced by Alex Bennett, Caroline Pace, and Cooper Smith. Special thanks to the Nashville Public Library, Jenna Schmid, and Mark Crowder. For more information and more episodes, visit justconversations.org. Follow us on Twitter at Just Conversate, on Instagram at Just Conversaciones, or on Facebook at Just Conversate.